As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. The Athletic. We knew the 2023 MotoGP season was going to be a little bit different with the arrival of sprints, meaning 42 races. We knew it was going to be punishing given that expanded schedule. I don't think any of us expected quite what we got with the Portuguese Grand Prix, with five of the 22 riders needing some kind of medical attention over the course of a fraught, spectacular admittedly, but definitely fraught first weekend. I'm Matt Beer. This is the Race MotoGP podcast. Joining me to try to unpick everything that's happened over the last three days are Simon Patterson, who's still in the press room at Portimao, and Valentin Harunchi. And I don't know about you two, but I, I'm absolutely reeling from that. I've I've really enjoyed quite a lot of it. I've been massively unnerved by other parts. What? How are you two feeling tonight? I feel like I kind of need to sit down and have a decompress for the weekend and, and put all my thoughts in order from it. So jumping straight into a podcast is probably a terrible idea, and that's probably an awful confession to start with. Um, we like raw emotion. Raw emotion is good. <laughs> Gut instinct, that kind of thing. It's been it's been an absolutely punishing writer weekend to be a writer, uh, not just in MotoGP, but in Moto2 and Moto3 as well. Uh, it has been a spectacular weekend to be a fan in that the new sprint race format, I think, has worked really, really well. And it's been a worrying weekend to be any manufacturer who isn't Ducati, based on the fact that Peko Bagnaia did exactly what we thought. And, you know, despite all the chaos going on around him, dominated the whole affair. Uh, it's been one of the hardest weekends mentally I can remember covering motorsport. And I don't, I'm not even sure I particularly understand why or how, because I've, I think all of us have been on desk when, unfortunately, somebody's passed away, and thankfully we've avoided anything close to that. Although I guess what happened to Paul Spargo, you can define as close. Um, but it was it was really really tough, even though it was also really exciting from a show standpoint. Um, I agree. The sprint format, in terms of entertainment, I have, as I, as I put it in in the written version of our verdict article, I have no notes. It was. It was great. It was really just a really, really good show. A really exciting watch. Really tense. Decided on the on the last lap. Lots of tussling. Lots of scrapping. Um, and I I was made massively uncomfortable by all of it because it felt like most of them were in control. Um, and then the race I actually weirdly liked a lot more, even though conventionally it was a lot more boring, just because it felt 
it felt more settled, save for the one incident that we will get to. I think we should uh, we should go straight for that incident, to be honest, because the headline at the end of Sunday was all about Mark Marquez. Not unusual, of course, but this was about Mark Marquez taking two riders out, or effectively two riders. Jorge Martin continued after Marquez ploughed into him and Miguel Oliveira, but Martin continued with a broken toe and later crashed by himself. Marquez was out on the spot, has got a, a broken hand. And Oliveira, um, to the fury of the Portuguese crowd, on a great weekend for Oliveira up to that point, was also out. He's escaped with just bruising, even though he looked like he was going to be the worst affected from the crash uh, Mark Marquez gets a double long lap penalty for the next race in Argentina and quite quite a split in the paddock between riders thinking that's nowhere near enough that Marquez always gets away with it that this is just a joke of a penalty and others going that can happen at that corner so Val where do you stand I'm going to start with something light-hearted there it, it has been a weird weekend for riders getting rear-ended and escaping relatively unscathed compared to the people who did the rear-ending because if you also saw the Moto3 race and how it concluded at the finish the race winner Danny Holgado is celebrating and was absolutely smashed by Joel Kelso behind him and Kelso is the one who who got hurt not seriously hurt but he'll you'll probably miss races right and Holgado looked back and was like I didn't feel that. I didn't notice that. I continued to celebrate for their slap. Didn't even bring it up in his in his post race interview. Genuinely amazing. Um, I don't know. <laughs> I think that's a race ban probably for what Mark Marquez did in in that situation. And it's not just because of the mistake, but it's there is an unnerving pattern of behavior there. And the very same thing that I was praising Mark for on Saturday feeds into it i from his quotes what he said like we break so late he said that you know if we don't break this late we end up 10th 11th 12th which sounds to me like the words of a person who is unwilling to accept that the level of the honda right now is 10th 11th 12th there is a feeling that mark tries way too hard to overcome the limitations of his of his bike and i don't want to call it entitlement because Ultimately, our expectation is that every single rider fights for the absolute maximum position, but the risks Mark takes, I do not like them. He he basically did the same thing on lap one, didn't he? He got out of control. He had to basically turn it into an impromptu overtake for the lead, which, you know, then got him checked up and caused the small contact with Jorge Martin that honestly almost called caused a, a minor pileup within the pack. And they escape that. And then the same thing in the same corner basically happens two laps later, that time with worse consequences. There isn't, we'll, we'll, we'll go into Mark's reasoning right now, but there isn't really a, a great explanation for that, say for a technical issue, which apparently there was not. No, I mean, it was boneheaded. It was boneheaded writing. It was the sort of writing that gave Mark Marquez this reputation when he was young and dumb which he then grew out of with the help of a few penalties along the way and which he kind of has left behind him in the past. Um, but now we're at a point where he suddenly isn't the most superhumanly talented guy on the grid. We well, might still be that, but he's on a bike that doesn't make that, that he can't make up for the limitations of. And, you know, this isn't the first time that he's done something particularly dumb even you know in the last few months because we only have to go bar back as far as Aragon last year to where you know he essentially ended Takanakagami's season 
um, with the, the chaos of you know him being sort of all over the place at the start of the race in uh, at, at his home circuit. Um, I I don't necessarily think so. A double long lap penalty is, is I personally think it's ridiculous. It's it's not enough of a sanction for something like this. When you see you know the, the perfect example was Ivan Ortola in the the Moto three race today where he barely made a mistake he was he was slightly too fast through a corner he made a slight bit of contact with uh with uh david alonso who was already sort of offline and trying to dive around the outside of him through his blind spot they made the slightest bit of contact and uh alonso went down that was a double long lap penalty if you're going to sanction you know contact between riders but in the same breath, then, what Marquez did has to be so much more because it was reckless. It wasn't careless. It was reckless. Um, I I wouldn't go as far as a race ban, but I think starting from pit lane at the next round would be a, a satisfactory punishment. Um, and, and to be honest, from speaking to Marquez afterwards, even he would said he would have accepted something harsher. But the problem is, um, you know, we've talked before in the podcast, we've talked before in, in written content in the site about how MotoGP essentially abandoned its penalty point system um, and put in favor, uh, in favor of it a, a stewarding system that's remarkably inconsistent. And, you know, what eventually came out afterwards is that it seems like the stewards have just decided to wipe the slate clean as of the start of the season, start, a, start from scratch, and if you knock another rider off, regardless of the consequences, seemingly, it's a, it's a double long lap penalty. Now, we all know from previous experience that the, the consequence uh, wouldn't be a double long lap penalty if the move was particularly severe. Um, if Miguel Oliveira had been really badly hurt today, thankfully he wasn't, I think the move would have been punished more harshly, but that that does nothing as a, a kind of a deterrent effect. You know, hoping that the guy that you've just plowed into doesn't break both his legs isn't enough. Um, yeah. So, Mark Marquez was, was dumb today. The MotoGP stewards were pretty dumb today again. And really, I'm glad that, that you know, everyone kind of got away without being too badly injured. Um, you know, there's the sort of there's a the worst injured of the bunch is probably Mark Marquez, and as of recording this on Sunday night, we're not entirely sure if he's going to be in Argentina next weekend to race. There's some mixed signals about that, uh, but yeah, I mean, missing around through the injuries sustained through the crash that he caused, while the other two guys are are able to ride, albeit a bit beaten up, I suppose would be fairer than any penalty that the stewards have handed down. I think ultimately my my sympathy for 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 the race ban is also you know it's a bit emotional it's a bit consequence driven uh, he's he's ended the races of two podium contenders and got him significantly hurt and also got himself hurt which is also very important um, so yeah maybe pit lane start but the thing is I don't I don't find it very like the excuses don't really do it for me, if that makes sense. And, you know, they'll say it's not an excuse and it's an explanation, but, you know, whatever. The The reasoning is Mark and team boss Alberto Puig were, were both um, keen to emphasize that he wasn't trying for an overtake, that he just, you know, he just lost it on the brakes and he, he couldn't avoid, you know, first Martin. He thought he'd avoided Martin, but it turns out, nah. And then Oliveira. 
The thing is, honestly, I believe that because when I saw the incident for the first time, I was like, well, that's not a move. He just lost control. He was just out of control. I, I think I believe it, but I, I don't care. It, like, I don't like this idea in, in stewarding that, well, you know, if the move's intentions were okay, then let's let it slide, relatively speaking. Um, you know, it's going to be a Formula One example, because of course, but, you know, Romain Grosjean, 20, 2012 Spa, the crash that he got the race banned for, was he really trying to overtake anybody? No. Just barreled into a bunch of people at turn one. It, but it was, you know, it was massive and it was in a very bad point. And he took out multiple cars and was very dangerous. This is the type of place where you must be enough in control of your bike to where this doesn't happen. The, you can see the riders in front. That's that's also the point, you know, Jorge Martin made. It was like, uh, you have to account for it in the braking. Like I was accounting for it in the braking or otherwise I would have done the same to, to Oliveira that Mark did to Oliveira and me. So yeah, I'm sy sympathetic to that argument. Uh, yeah. Um, one thing that just to clarify there. Um, so all the comments from Marquez up to this point has been that he doesn't believe he made contact with Jorge Martin, like you picked up on Val. I think what he means when he says that is that he didn't make contact with Jorge Martin, the person, as opposed to Jorge Martin's bike, because right. he obviously made contact with Jorge Martin's bike. We, we could see uh, in the video that there was winglets flying off it. Yeah. Um, but that's not the case. Um, and, and the reason that I think that that is, that, you know, that was his belief is because I had a chat with him after his, after his debrief and they genuinely believed that uh, Jorge Martin had broken his foot in the subsequent crash of his leader in the race. Uh, but but we sort of we specifically clarified with Martin that no no, um, it was contact with Mark Marquez on his leg that he said actually left him for the the latter half of the race with his right leg basically dangling off the foot peg because he couldn't put weight on it because Mark had smashed into his knee and his his foot and probably broken a metacarpal. And this is it. I think Val, you summed it up really well when you said. That might be the truth of what happened here, that Marquez just made a mistake, not even trying to pass. But as you said, I don't care. And I'm I'm completely with you. I don't it doesn't matter to me in the slightest. It's I get that Marquez is riding beyond that Honda. I admire that. You know, he's got two very good stable mates in in Mir and Rins now, and they were miles from him all weekend. What what you know, he put that bike on pole and it should be absolutely nowhere near a pole position. That's insane. But He's been around for over a decade, or yeah, a decade now in Grand Prix race in, in in the Premier Class. He's the greatest rider of his generation. He shouldn't just be out breaking himself on skittling a bunch of people. However hard he's riding a bike, he should have the maturity, the control. The, the, as someone who, I, I've said it a lot of times this podcast, someone I genuinely think I've not had the privilege of working in motorsport at the same time as any as anyone as good as Mark Marquez. Nobody in Formula 1 in this generation, Valentino Rossi, I don't think they're as, they've made as much a difference as Mark Marquez has in terms of what he's brought to motorsport talent-wise. And to believe that about someone and then just watch them barrel into two bikes just through being beyond their capabilities at that point, it's just like, come on, you are so much better than this. And you're breaking yourself and others in a totally needless way. Just pull it together. 
I think what you said there with, you know, all weekend is actually sort of partly the key to this because all weekend starting from the, the sessions that counted, really, I would say. So the, the qualifying and the two races. In Friday practice, you could make a pretty good case that another Honda was quicker. Uh, yeah, here. definitely. Could make a really good case for that. And then on Saturday, Mark out, basically outfoxed Mir by following him on the first run, getting four tenths through that leaving and then just waiting in the pits, which has now left Juan Mir understanding that he too will need to be grabbing toes. Um, then on, you know, on Saturday, he was his usual, absolutely ruthless, maximizing everything self, got a third place that his bike did not warrant. All of that is extremely admirable, but if you get over the limit, then it sort of, it paints it in a different light. And I think this is uh, armchair psychology, whatever, but I it feels like Mark isn't, for all of his rhetoric going into the season, I think he's not entirely willing to settle for the positions that the Honda bike is capable of giving him right now, which is it's not great because because he has to. And the, the problem is that we have seen Mark ride like this in the past and we haven't really seen the same consequences, but MotoGP is, as we, you know, continually reiterate closer than ever and and a race that if you know when he started would have been would have seen people separated by seconds they're now separated by tenths which means there's so much less margin for error whenever you're doing stuff like this there's so much less room on the track around you to you know to make mistakes um especially at the start of races and i would imagine as we go forward especially in sprint races where they're going to stay a lot more bunched up because people aren't trying to save tires and manage things like that um yeah you, you just there's just not the room to get away with it anymore and if he doesn't realize that sooner rather than later and keeps trying to ride it you know the honda to a point beyond where it can be ridden um we're gonna see more penalties well at least we'd need to see more penalties um <laughs> I guess part of it is he's, in a way, he's riding like someone who has to prove himself at the moment, which as a six-time MotoGP champion, obviously he doesn't. But at the same time, after the last three years, he does. He's got to prove that he's yeah. capable of what he used to be capable of, that Honda can be great with him again, all of that. It's like he's riding like someone at the start of his career because, in effect, he's at the start of a different, different career almost. I get all that. I just, yeah... I, I'm not quite sympathetic enough to to not just be really <laughs> feel disappointed in him tonight. And I've never really made this like this comparison has literally just popped into my head. But you know the um, the famous Casey Stoner to Valentino Rossi, your ambition outweighed your talent line. Yeah, came from Rossi doing sort of similarly boneheaded stuff in arguably a similar career position when he tried to restart his career with a different thing at Ducati. And it wasn't really working and he was, you know, a bit ragged and a bit wild because he was trying to override a bike that wasn't doing what he wanted it to do the way that the previous bike had. Only his previous bike was a Yamaha, not a slightly different Honda. Yeah. I'd, uh, I, it's interesting to think about that as well because Rossi at that point was almost the first career, it was the first career misstep he'd made. It was the first time he'd been in that position and... That was just moving to a less competitive team that he probably shouldn't have joined at that point. Marcus has got so much on his shoulders with what's gone wrong at Honda, with what's gone wrong for him physically, with his own responsibility in that over so many years. I, yeah, there's an awful lot weighing on him, but uh, the solution to it is not to break yourself and others even more than you've uh, yeah, broken yourself in recent years. Looking for an assist with your credit card, but can't get a hold of anyone? 
Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, ArmorAll, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every $20 you spend on ArmorAll products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at ArmorAll.com. ArmorAll, less work, more clean. Terms apply. Friday practice started with an absolutely horrible shunt for Polis Bargaro. Um, one in which the consequences actually don't seem quite as bad as we feared at the time, but it's still spine and face and chest injuries, which is which is pretty bad. So, Simon, do you want to, in case any listeners didn't uh, weren't following things on Friday practice, do you want to talk us through what happened? Yeah. So, um, Paul went went over the crest of the the famous hill at Portimao, where the circuit drops down as you come over it and hangs to the right. Um, Luca Marini, I think, gave probably the best explanation of it. Um, as he often does in these situations and said that he reckons that he was using too much rear brake which is a a Paul trait anyway Um, never mind in a sort of a cold session that had already been delayed 30 minutes because of a power outage at the circuit of all things Um, he went over the crest he used too much rear brake he lost the rear he went into the gravel trap and both he and the bike basically cartwheeled themselves into oblivion and hit the wall uh, Paul ended up with a, a broken vertebrae, um, bad bruising to his lungs that, that left him with quite a bit of there were quite a bit of worry about the oxygen levels he was getting into his body on Friday night, and a broken jaw of all things, which is a, a really you know that really really drives home for me the the severity of the impact here. If a a modern safe MotoGP helmet broke enough to you know to break his jaw under it, um, I, it could have been worse because the bike followed him into the wall and very, very narrowly missed him. Um, and if the bike had, had ended up in the same point as him, I don't want to think about the consequences of it. I don't want to even consider what we would be talking about right now. Um, but, yeah, the, the the problem with this crash, um, like a few of the other crashes from both the test the Moto2 and the Moto3 test from the weekend in between the MotoGP test and this weekend, um, and this, you know, through the race weekend, it was a completely avoidable crash caused by the Portimao gravel, which has been something that MotoGP riders have been complaining about since we first raced here in 2020. Um, It has these big, thick rocks that bikes dig into, don't slide over. It doesn't dissipate energy. It flings things into the air, and, you know, they made a, a half-assed job to repair it between the MotoGP test and the the race here by essentially laying smaller gravel over the top of the, the bigger stuff. And if you watch Paul's crash carefully, you can see that he is sliding over the, the loose, small gravel the way that he should until he hits the transition to the bigger stuff, and that's where everything goes completely wrong. Um, riders were understandably furious afterwards, 
because uh, I think Paco Bagnaia described it best as basically this turned an innocu- a relatively innocuous crash into a red flag incident that left someone seriously hurt. Um, writers are once again talking about unionizing, um, which seems to be Dorna Boss, Carmelo Espeleta's least, least favorite word on the planet based on the way he responds every time it's mentioned to him. But you know, if writers' safety concerns aren't being listened to, then what else option really do they have going forward? The uh, other, the next set of injuries as we went into the weekend was uh, was from a collision in the sprint, and it was one of quite a few collisions in the sprint. So the one that actually ended up with a rider being hurt was in his first Works Ducati race. Ennio Bastianini was taken out by of all people Luca Marini, the man who never makes mistakes, never takes out other Ducatis particularly, um, and that's left that's left Bastianini with a broken shoulder, which is going to rule him out of definitely the Argentinian Grand Prix next weekend. So this was less a case of the circuit being at fault, but it wasn't a surprise that someone got hurt in the sprint because the whole thing right from the start, as, as entertaining and brilliant as it was, wow, it was wild and unhinged, wasn't it? I have to rewatch because, you know, it's easy to have what you see colored by what you expect. And everybody obviously expected a, a super wild sprint and a more settled race. And after the, the race... Peko Bagnaia made the argument that, you know, look at what happened with, you know, Marquez, Oliveira and Martin. This shows that actually it's just the same level of wildness. I don't think I agree, but I, I need to rewatch. The sprint felt, it felt unhinged. It felt completely out of control. It felt like people were barging each other off left and right. Um, it, it, it surprised me that only one collision ended with that level of seriousness. It, was, it wasn't actually a collision. It was just Luca Marini losing control of his bike on the inside while not really going recklessly, just sort of making, it seems, a fairly innocuous error. And Ine Bastianini was unlucky enough to be on the outside. I still think it should have been a penalty, by the way, but that's you know, neither here nor there. Um, obviously, we also saw Joan Mir run into Fabio Quartararo and crash out and compromise Quartararo's sprint. But we also just saw a whole lot of barging and a whole lot of moments where sort of you really had to grit your teeth and just get through it as a viewer, and I presume also as a rider. Uh, a few riders were genuinely aghast at what they saw in the sprint, and I, I think the race was slightly more calm in that regard. And I think the argument that in the sprint, the, the extra level of urgency and the, the understanding that you don't have enough time to make use of your natural pace to get in your natural position, I think that's accurate. Um, yeah, uh, which, which is, again... It was, it was really good entertainment. I really, I really loved it. And if we were in a world where all the riders were like in some sort of smart protective bubbling that protected them from contact with the ground or with other bikes the minute there was any danger, this is a no-brainer. This is spectacular. But I, I worry about doing this 20 times, man. Like the, the MotoGP race start is already obviously risky, very obviously. The more we do it, the more we play with math. And when we do it like this in races where people clearly feel more urgency, which I don't like the math, really, really freaks me out a little bit. The, the, the only thing that's kind of keeping me from being as fearful as you are, maybe Val, is that I think we, we had a fairly unique set of circumstances this weekend. Yeah, I agree. The first round of the season is always more nervous. It's always more tense and it's always more rusty. 
people are not as risk sharp, even if they've been testing RaceQuest is different from from riding laps of a circuit, you know, without it. The other point, obviously, is the sprint races. Um, not necessarily, I think, the concept of the sprint races, but the fact that it was the first one, which was always going to make things, you know, more nervous as well. And then the other point was one that um, Fabio Quartararo actually raised that I hadn't considered until he did raise it, and that's that normally we start the season at probably one of the safest circuits in the calendar in the form of, of Liceo in Qatar, which is big, wide, open, has amazing runoff, is flat, doesn't have the elevation changes of Portimao. And instead, this year, we started the season at somewhere that's tight, it's narrower, it's got those elevation changes and the blind corners and the you know the offloaded tires and, and all the things that comes with it. Um, yes, so I kind of hope that the reason that we had such a wild weekend was all of those factors combined. Um, you know, the, the the perfect example of how chaotic this weekend was. Luca Marini crashed more times this weekend than Luca Marini crashed last season. Wow, that that's how how wild this weekend was. Um, from from a relatively you know what you'd argue is probably one of the two safest riders in the grid, along with Maverick Vinales. Um, it was it was just mayhem. Um, and yeah, I really hope that that's all a consequence of those factors and that we go to, to Termas de Rio Hondo in like four days' time, whatever it is, and, and it's a little bit more calm simply because, you know, all, all, some of those factors at least are mitigated. And also, you know, I don't know if it plays a role or not, but also maybe because we're not in Europe. Um, because I think there is an added pressure to starting the season in Europe as well. I think also, you know, it is also a point that a lot of riders raised, and obviously because of the extra days of testing, everybody's pace was just stupidly close, really, at the start of the season and stayed there, which means everybody enters Saturday sprint. Basically, like 15 riders enter it knowing they can get themselves into a pretty good position here and pick up some serious points because the pace should more or less be there. And I think that's the difference with, you know, because people obviously point to World Superbikes, which has its own sprint format and does perfectly fine with it. But you'll note in World Superbikes, the sprints usually also end with that familiar one, two, three of Alvaro Bautista, Toprak Rasgat Lioglu and Jonathan Ray. Maybe not this season. We'll have to see this season. But, you know, there's, it feels like there's more pace variance there. And I say that as somebody who's not really like, hasn't looked too close. So it might be talking out of my butt, but. Maybe we'll also see a bit more of that pace variance going forward and we'll see riders understand their place maybe a little bit more, have maybe a greater idea of what they need to aim for and mitigate risks. And maybe riders from like 10th to 20th just take it easy because that was not happening clearly that was not happening this time even though that's there's no points there but even though there's no points there the way it was going maybe the 16 riders ahead will all crash and you're the winner you couldn't know that well this this was what i thought because on on saturday night uh, you both mentioned that a few riders genuinely didn't seem to realize that the points stopped at ninth place in, in the sprint and were still you know going for each other thinking they would have points at stake but if the three if you're in a pack and three rides ahead you get taken out suddenly you know you you might be within a couple of rides of the points you can't you can't you can't give up till the race is over can you so as much as part of me thinks yeah come on calm down you're 17th there's two laps for a sprint to go you, you can't think that way yeah i mean without naming names and embarrassing people alex marquez absolutely thought that he would have got a point for finishing 10th 
um, and was quite lucky to get points by finishing ninth with the last lap overtake. Um, that that really seems like something quite fundamental that the team should have sat down and drilled into these guys <laughs> before the start of the sprint races. Like we've been talking about this for quite a while now. You you would think they'd know that, but there you go. And he's a smart bloke, and you know what? Johan yeah. Zarco is a smart bloke either. I think he also acknowledged that he didn't know how many riders scored. Just shows you how like blinkered and super focused those guys are on their art rather than the vagaries of the regulation. It seems weird to us because we live in the world of the vagaries of the regulation. We think about these things weirdly more than they do, but it's it's maybe not so weird when you realize all the other stuff that they have to think about that doesn't really concern us. We don't need to go fast. <laughs> but, but, but but if if Sean Sarko and Alex Marquez didn't understand it, like what do some of the more ride or die riders of the grid? Yeah. You know, yeah. like, do they, do they think that you get points for 15th? Have they ever known how many positions score points? I think is the, is the, is the question. And do I've, I've met some, I'm, I'm not generating anyone in the current MotoGP grid, but I've met some writers that I don't think can count to 15. <laughs> and do they need to, ultimately? Is that, yeah. Who knows? I think, yeah, I think out of the three of us on Saturday, I felt like I was the biggest sprint fan and was doing best at... at I'm not proud of this, shutting my brain off to the dangers and just going, no, nah, I've just really enjoyed that. That was actually mega. But I don't think it's going to calm down that much, mainly because you've still got that element of the that mid part of a MotoGP race where you're biding your time, you're figuring out the tyre wear for the end, you're sussing your rivals out. That's gone. That doesn't exist in this format. If you're going to get anything done in that race, you just do it as soon as the opportunity arises. You're not going to Valentino Rossi in your way to a last lap overtake. You're just seeing the, the rider ahead and barreling past them if you can. And I think that is going to stay all season. I mostly quite like it, but in a slightly guilty way that's going to bite me if someone gets hurt. I, I think Val and I are maybe coming at our, our, let's say, reluctance towards sprint races from slightly different points of view because Val has genuine safety concerns, which I, I echo. But you know, my concern is still that I, I don't know what the problem is that they're the solution to. I, I still don't really know what we're trying to fix with them because the problem of people watching not watching MotoGP isn't going to be fixed by having more MotoGP. It's going to be fixed by getting eyes on the what we've already got. Um, and that kind of makes me feel like... I don't want to call them pointless because they are good entertainment and they were great for the fans that were here. And I should say, uh, Sky Sports Italy absolutely nailed it by streaming them live free on YouTube in Italy. That is... you know, I've said this in the very beginning that that's what everyone should be doing with them. But until everyone is doing that with them, they, they don't really serve a function in terms of raising the profile of the whole sport i can i can see them working as a as a free free to air little taster though given yeah i know we're, we're used to other forms of motorsport being so long that a 45 minute motor gp race seems very short but actually this weekend showed that no actually 45 minutes is still a reasonable time commitment if you know nothing about something don't really care about it yet whereas actually if you can put 20 minutes aside 15 20 minutes and it's being chucked at you free on youtube yeah, very good shot at hooking someone. Yeah, I mean, the Moto E races are really, really good. Uh, yeah, I, when you say I come come at it from a safety perspective, I mean, that's part of it, but people will rightly argue that, well, it's still, you know, it's still a, a Moto GP race with bikes running in close proximity. That's just, uh, that's a certain level of unsafe. And it's the, 
it's just the odds bit that that scares me and i maybe it's my problem maybe i just i haven't understood how to reconcile that part yet maybe i never will maybe one day i really hope one day just will will figure something out technologically that makes this whole thing so much more safer and i don't know what it is and i don't know how it can be done i just i want it i don't like broken bones i don't like you know all the the horrid injuries and i i sure as hell don't like fatalities at all and i can't really accept them as a fact of life and i think in in the modern world of people on social media getting to know all the writers so much more I mean, that's that's not really something you can accept not just because it's a loss of human life but just because maybe people won't won't be able to get over losing their heroes i don't know it's it's a clearly like a really emotional weird topic for me um it's just you know it's the odds thing it there's 50 more 42 starts i'm just i'm i'm scared i don't know yeah i mean people will say oh they're not on track any longer than they were previously because the race has replaced fp4 but no one's ever got knocked off and broken bones as a result that i can remember in fp4 like the that the intensity of a race is an order of magnitude higher than a practice session or a qualifying. It, it's just not the same. It is a, a level above, and we saw that. You know, we we saw that play out in real time in front of us. And as you say, the, the thought of doing that over and over and over again, twice a weekend for the rest of the year, is quite daunting. Yeah, if anybody, I can't remember off the top of my head, if anybody has got injured properly in an FP4. In, in a collision there I were definitely have collisions got, have got hurt but, I, yeah. Yeah. Um, uh, but if they did that's a freak occurrence whereas it's kind of a collision is not the point of a race but you're trying to overtake you're trying to go wheel to wheel so yeah the odds are that much higher we've got a long way into this podcast where okay we've mentioned our, the champion and the race winner uh, Pekka Banya quite a lot but we haven't really highlighted the fact that he did win the race at both of them pretty commandingly so that's kind of what we all expected going into this. Well, I must, I must admit, I didn't think it would be quite as straightforward for him. Uh, straightforward. I, you know what? I was the guy going into the weekend thinking and saying, I don't think it'll be as straightforward as the doom saying from testing made it sound. Honestly, I think on that particular point, I think I was right because I don't think it was completely straightforward. He got it done because he's great. He got it, but he got it done under pressure on, on, on both occasions. And, you know, he played it smart. Obviously, he had a little bit in reserve compared to everybody, but it's the kind of reserve that doesn't ruin a race. It's a reserve of like a tenth, a tenth and a bit. Um, in the sprint, I mean, Jorge Martin could have won that. I mean, he probably, he, he was probably going to lose it even if he didn't make that mistake, but he, he could have won it. It was a it was a last lap tussle and Martin had really good pace and we didn't we didn't get to see what, what happened to him on, on Sunday. I... He thinks he may have had something for Pecco. I, I don't know, but I think he would have been second because, honestly, he's been really good through testing and really good through the weekends. Um, Maverick Vinales gave it a really good go on Sunday, too. Uh, Pecco probably did have him about well in hand, but Pecco did ultimately chew up his tire at the end. You saw the, the pace drop off, and if the race was maybe a couple laps longer, well, he would have calculated it differently, but he was not an inevitability that he was going to win he controlled it you can say he dominated but it was he was challenged i think that is that is more or less what i expected and maybe what what we expected and it's it's honestly massive credit to him that he 
executed the weekend so, so well. I just, I didn't see him do, what did he do wrong? He had like one dumb crash, I think in a FP3, was it, right before qualifying? That was basically it. Through the races, he was the, the exact right mix of aggressive and conservative at the starts and how he managed the space. Just, just so good. So, so good. And maybe this is a man riding liberated by the fact he already has a title. Excellent. Um, for, for me, I, I know it's really, really stupid to make like season-long predictions based on seeing two races at one round. But I think what we saw this weekend is going to be quite telling for the rest of the season where Peko Bagnaia doesn't necessarily have an easy time of it. But it's never going to be the same guy two days in a row that's pushing him. Um, you know, we, we saw Pekka win both races with four different people on the podiums. And, and I think that's that could well be the, uh, you know, the, the tale of this season, where there's no real title contender emerges to take him on, but there's lots of people having a go at him all the same. Um, it's almost like, uh, I think, was it 17 or 16, uh, Marquez's season, where there was all those different race winners, but he was still comfortably winning a title because even if the other race winners were having a go at him and taking a race win here or there, he was second when they were winning. Um, and I think we're, we're going to see a similar year to Bagnaya, which is is kind of what we predicted. Although maybe we thought that everyone who was challenging him in that way would be in a Ducati. And the, the reality is that, you know, they might be in a Aprilia, they might be in a Honda, they might even be in a KTM, which we didn't expect. But um, yeah, I... I, I don't have the the feeling taken away from this weekend that there's a standout contender to fight him. I mean, I, Martin probably. I, I would argue, but mm. I I know what you mean, and I, I'm you know, I'm going to get to that point right now. The thing which I completely agree with what you're saying because the thing that I saw is that all of the potential season long rivals either don't have the like either have some obvious clear flaw or just don't have the body of work to where you can project season-long front running onto them Maverick Vinales was really good like genuinely very good very fast but they're the execution from him and from Aprilia is just clearly not at Banya's level weekend long Vinales will I think have more slumps than Banya does Enea Bastianini even when he like oh, he's hurt now so he's going to be in a 50-point hole right away but even beyond that, he was starting to drop at the start of the sprint, which makes me wonder whether that's still the Achilles heel there, those first few laps. Uh, Fabio Quartararo can't get a qualifying result and the early laps out of his Yamaha. So under, I want to say under slight duress, but I was I was goaded into naming him my title favorite for the season in our in our preview podcast. Sorry, I don't feel very good about that prediction. Not not even a little bit. I feel awful about it because this was just 2022 spec quarter hour weekend, despite the extra kilometers per hour and his his title aspirations are in in serious serious trouble. Uh, and Martin, we still. We don't know about his longevity and his consistency, also because he just got knocked off on Sunday, and and we don't know that much. So yeah, and that just that leaves the the one man standing, doesn't it? Well, even the fact that he is one of one of the few potential season long frontrunners not carrying some kind of injury after this weekend, even just that in itself, is that obviously is yeah. quite. Telling, it reminded but... me of 
Remember Barcelona 2019 when Jorge Lorenzo said basically every Marc Marquez rival <laughs> down the road at the start? In one move. Yeah. yeah. Like, that's that part was the... Like, Marc was always going to win that title, but that part was when the season ended. Like, in one move, it was done. Yeah. And somehow we we maybe got that at the start. I was going to say, at insane. least that got to halfway through the season. It was like June or something, but... But even even without that, I think the thing that kind of worried me from a competitive point of view was just that little margin Banyaya had. You know, he he was a, it looked like he could control any situation that arose, and doing that when you're one of the few fit front runners, and doing that when you've already got a points cushion and it's only the first round, that's that's a very very tough combination to beat. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Probably the biggest reason why it's looking so relatively easy for Banyai already is that Yamaha is just not in contention based on the evidence of Portimao. Now, we, we maybe should have expected this. Testing was was a real up and down experience, mostly down for Cotteraro. But by the end of the test, it looked like things were sort of sorted. The engine was more powerful. You know, he was it found it seemed to find qualifying pace, and yet when it comes to the weekend that counts, Cotteraro is is miles off and, and stuck in the pack. So. Val, as as you as you put it, I goaded you into naming him as favourite for the sake of an entertaining podcast. Uh, but let's let's move on from that. Do, do you have much hope for him getting in title contention from this point? Because it it looks so far off this weekend. Uh, I should you know I should preface it by saying that in 2022 had a really bad opener and I felt that was it that was done for the season and then it didn't work out like that. He actually had a a massive lead at one point. That said, I don't like this for for them because. I I guess maybe the feeling is that Partimao maybe didn't suit them fantastically, although you wouldn't have said it last year when Fabio eased the way to victory. And there's he doesn't sound super optimistic and super positive, and he's not going to have a lot of races where he puts it on pole and is able to break away, which is basically, it seems, what he needs. So I think... I don't want to say it's over after two after two races because that's you know that's silly and I'm I'm going to be proven wrong and going to sound going to sound dumb about it but I don't I don't see what the path here is because already this is already an early hole and it's not a track that should be this bad for Yamaha and Banyaya looks excellent. Um, I mean, we've seen. Fabio Cuadraro have poor starts to seasons before. We've seen other title winners have poor starts to seasons before. So I, I'm not going to, you know, bet the farm on one weekend. Um, especially because, you know, m- maybe I'm clutching at straws here because I want to have a good title fight. But the issues that they're having, the complaints that they seem to be complaining about right now, sound like things that can be solved in season with time. Uh, they're talking a lot about electronics, about power delivery about the way that the bike is managing the power delivery they're not complaining about lack of speed which is you know which is a, a, i'm sure a welcome relief for uh, some of the engineers in yamaha considering that's all they've complained about for the last few years 
So maybe it can be fixed. Maybe it's going to take more time. Maybe he's not going to have enough time to be a title contender, but maybe he is. Um, you know, we we need to see. Um, I'm sure in an ideal world, he would much rather have seen some of the other Ducatis, you know, seen Jorge Martin take a few points in Peco Bagnaya here and there this weekend. Um, and I'm sure in an ideal world, he'd rather have seen his teammate a bit further to the front so that they were gathering a bit more useful data. But Franco Morbidelli is, is quite frankly, completely lost at the minute, unfortunately. Um, but yeah, I, I don't think all hope is lost for Fabio Quattararo. Uh, the, the teammate gap is, is, is what scares me a, a little bit because for all the general badness of his weekends, I mean, you look at where Fabio ended up, but then you look at where Franco Morbidelli ended up and was all weekends. Franco Morbidelli was the last of the finishers. He was 27, I think, seconds off in the main race. He was last, he was 14th. He was beaten by Augusto Fernandez, the rookie on Tech 3, on the Tech 3 gas gas and beaten comprehensively. You know, this is sort of, it's what's happening to Quartura up front is happening to Morbidelli at the back. I think the other bikes are too good. Which is which is a concern, and it it doesn't look like Quartararo can afford any slip ups because he's still having a real problem overtaking. He did he did get a move done on Luca Marini, a really struggling Luca Marini before his crash, after many many laps of trying. But just watching, you know, just watching the Ducatis and the ease at which the Ducatis, particularly the Ducati of Alex Marquez, who you know finished fifth in the end but ran fourth most of the race. And was just, you know, was toying with the KTMs, which were overtaking him in the final sector and then getting absolutely gobbled up on the main straight. If that's what's happening to the KTMs, then as as much of a game the Yamaha has made, what what chance does it stand? <laughs> what chance does anybody stand? But yeah, I that you know, that lack of the qualifying burst, the lack of a clarity of what the route ahead is we all expected a rough start because you know the new package needs to be optimized they're still not clearly not maximizing the aero potential that they have but i mean the turnaround is going to have to be spectacular isn't it yeah it's gonna have well it's gonna have to come soon it doesn't necessarily have to come immediately because we're in our longest ever season and there's a huge amount of points on the table that's true um but you know they they need to be at the very least they need to spend the post race Monday test at Hareth getting this thing right. That that is kind of the hard cut off. Um, you know we know that Mark Marquez is a new Calix frame arriving to that one, um, which means it's a pretty important day for him as well. But I think it's it's probably an even more important day for Yamaha and for Quadraro. Um, unfortunately, the more that we see more Bedelli struggling, the more. I, I, I kind of, it's good for Quartararo, but it's bad for Morbidelli. Um, I'm buying less into the theory that Fabio is some sort of an alien riding a Yamaha the way that Mark Marquez used to ride a Honda that isn't very good. I think maybe the bike isn't awful. Um, I think that it's just that the, the bar for Quartararo's teammates has been quite low of late. Because um, we've got a Franco Morbidelli who's obviously lost. Um, a straight from Moto3 rookie in the form of Darren Binder in the satellite bike. Andrea Davizioso, who was so bored of the whole thing, he retired halfway through the season anyway. And uh, the test drag rider, Cal Crutchlow, dragged kicking and screaming out of retirement to, to jump onto the machine again. You know, I, I don't think we've seen a fair crack at what 
other riders are capable of on the Yamaha. So I, I don't want to say that the bike is truly, truly awful and Quarter Hour was working miracles on it. Um, but it's clearly not the best bike in the grid. It's, it's clearly not even the second best bike in the grid. Um, and, and, you know, after the KTM performance of the weekend, it might not even be the third best bike in the grid, which comes as a bit of a surprise, really. But, uh, yeah, it, they have a little bit of time. Uh, I'm sure they're not delighted that that little bit of time is on flyaway races where they've got less engineering support around them than they maybe would have back in Europe. But yeah, if this is something that can be fixed electronically, then they, they don't need a huge amount of support to fix it electronically. Uh, we heard Jack Miller saying that halfway through the final day of the test here, they were literally rewriting software code in the truck. And, you know, it... it has largely fixed their issues because they fixed them electronically uh, and they did it in a day if Yamaha can make it a step like that on uh, you know next Friday in in Mass or, or even the following weekend in in Austin or even the Monday after Hareth on the test day there then there is hope for the rest of the season we should uh, we should actually talk about Jack Miller a bit more now because I think if you take take away what Marquez did with the Honda on Saturday, what Miller was doing with the KTM was probably the, was surprise of the weekend. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. And now as as Miller himself sort of I, I don't want to say gloated, but rightly pointed out, ninety five percent of the internet declared their bike crap, and clearly this weekend proves it is not crap. No, we we didn't say crap. We I did think. I was not very impressed with what I saw in the preseason. And I think, you know, that's that's universal. I think that's also universal on the grid. Other riders were clearly caught out. Yeah, there was no evidence. There's no evidence of it not being crap, Yeah, basically. Every, every piece of evidence from testing suggested it was. Yeah, Jack's suggestion basically was that, you know, that was sort of the working out of the electronics concealed the, the pace. And then coming into the weekend, they, they it was time for them to put it all together. And they did. Um, I still, I have my reservations because on other race weekends, you will not get to hone your setup that well with the, with the two days of full running. And also the KTM is just notoriously up and down from one weekend to another. So I still, you know, I still want to see a bit more proof, but they, you know, they deserve to be doing victory laps right now. Not only did Miller do a, a good Friday, a very good Friday practice, good qualifying, good sprint, good race, but Brad Binder struggling all weekend with pain in his neck, potentially like a pinched nerve or something, or just, just something, and, and shoulders, and still did the usual Brad Binder thing of getting big, big points on the board on Sunday. Um, they they deserve a, a ton of credit. Even, you know what, Augusto Fernandez finishing 13th. He's He's got good pace on that bike. He's clearly the RC16 was in a better shape this weekend than it was on average last year. The the pace of the rookie is also evidence to that. He was 20-something seconds off the win. That's good for a rookie. Yeah, that's fine, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. And he's, you know, he's doing the... He's better on late in races, so he's going to have some fresh tire struggles. But he's, you know, the, his pace is okay. Uh, so the bike is, you know, it showed something, you know, properly good. Also, I think they all ran the trapezoid wing. So, so be used to that, I think. Maybe not all, but definitely all of them, at least some parts of the weekend. I have to look again. Uh, maybe the trapezoid wing is the secret. The trapezoid wing adds four seconds per lap. Augusto <laughs> um, uh, Fernandez's only problem at the minute is the perennial MotoGP rookie qualifying problem of 
yeah, it's impossible, not possible, it's incredibly difficult to maximise your fast lap, your one lap time attack on this. And as a result, it's really far back on the grid. And, you know, qualifying is everything in MotoGP these days. But that will improve. You'll, you'll get faster because if the pace is there, the time attack will come eventually. Um, and he's going to be really impressive this year, which is good. Um, but the, the, the lingering problem now for KTM, because of everything we've seen in the past, is that they can't presume that they have a good bike until they've seen that that bike is good at other places. Um, it helps that we're, we're going to Termas and then to Circuit of the Americas to two you know, very different circuits from here that will give them a good chance to, to see. Um, and, and if this form continues, they'll go back to Europe absolutely delighted with where they are, far, far above expectations. Um, but it's going to take a bit of time to figure that out because you can never bet in the KTM being consistent from one week to the next, can you? That's that's also you know a good reason to be somewhat bullish relative to what we saw on the likes of Yamaha and Aprilia, and somewhat bearish on the KTM. Not only you know obviously those are bikes on two different ends of the spectrum when it comes to I'd say weekend readiness. The Aprilia just seems great out of the box always, and the KTM does not seem very good out of the box, but gets good with a lot of mileage. I mean, last year uh, at Qatar, they turned a, a bad test into a, a really good race for Binder, and then the rest of the year was weird. Um, and with the, with the new format, that's doubly important because as, you know, as the riders say, you only really get FP, maybe FP1, maybe just the bits of FP2 that aren't the qualifying time attack, depending on the condition of the track to hone your setup and your package for for the upcoming races because you know with fp4 gone and fp3 being useless ish uh because of the differing different track conditions i don't think it's like completely useless but it's not as useful as fp4 always was so that's that's the big test ktm will have to pass and that's maybe a a, a good reason for again aprilia and yamaha to feel pretty pretty good Aprilia doesn't need a lot of reasons to be good because Aprilia was great this weekend yeah absolutely I, you know Honda had a, a startling little cameo with Marquez KTM overperformed expectations can't think of anything positive to say about Yamaha especially but Yamaha was there as well and, and will definitely get better but probably too late Aprilia I think comes away solid second best bike on the grid Vinales looked like he had a decent shot at winning a, a, a few instances in the race he was keeping pace with Bagnaia or, or closing in slightly even though you always felt like Bagnaia had that under control but yeah we're, we're into we're into the season now where Aprilia being a front runner possible championship contender just feels routine and so Vinales starting the starting the season with a second place for Aprilia just almost felt like it went unnoticed in in the best possible way really I should should say to correct the previous thing, they didn't test at Harris uh, at, at Qatar last year, did they? So I actually have no idea where that KTM performance at Qatar came from, and neither does anybody else. It will be one of life's great unsolved mysteries. You will switch on the History Channel with those weird with those weird alien documentaries, and you'll see how how did Brad Binder finish second at Qatar last year? Aprilia, <laughs> yeah, Aprilia. That's let's go let's go back on topic. Aprilia, um, both Maverick and Alish very fast at, at certain points of the weekend, at most points of the weekend. And we also saw, obviously, some great stuff from the 2022 bike of Miguel Oliveira, who should have been on the sprint podium, if not for a late mistake, and then probably should have been on the main race podium, given given he was running second when he got torpedoed. And 
Raul Fernandez still seems a bit uneasy with qualifying, but even sort of his weekend was better than it looked because, you know, there's still that qualifying problem, but the, the general long run pace is there and why Sunday was deflating because he was running like 10th, I think, early on. And then he had an arm problem. Then he just like, there's something happened. So that might be a, a rookie thing, a strength conditioning thing, a new sprint weekend format thing. He'll be okay. And the, the Aprilia is good. It, it actually, it sounded a bit like a trap nerve thing with uh, Fernandez. Um, he said his whole arm went numb uh, when we were talking to him uh, sort of two hours after the race, he was icing his wrist, um, but his whole arm was, he said his whole arm had went numb during the race. He didn't really know where it was. He didn't think it was arm pump, uh, but unfortunately with the schedule, he's going to have to uh, power through this weekend coming in Argentina, hope that the problem doesn't reappear and then address it after that with uh, some medical intervention. And, and you'll be with him on the grid, right? As he said. <laughs> Uh, yeah, he told me that he expects that he expects by quota that there'll be so few riders left that I need to get a race license, um, which is just an incredibly bleak, black humor way to look at the current state of MotoGP. He's given us a lovely way to round off the podcast, though, hasn't he? That was uh, very kind of Raul Fernandez to bring it back to the the central point that wow, this was a wild, wild weekend, and we're doing it all again in just a week. I, w- well, Argentina should be calmer than what we've just said. I know whenever I think of Argentina, I think of Andrea and only ploughing into Andrea Dovizioso. That's my, that's my like defining memory of Termas de Rio Hondo MotoGP races. So, how to lose your job in one corner? Well, in, in, indeed. So, yeah, maybe maybe it will be slightly mad, but I'm I'm, I'm expecting that we'll have got first night nerves, new format, overexcitement out of the way, and the the battered and bruised riders that are making it to Argentina next week will give us a hopefully just as entertaining but slightly less terrifying display um we'll be back straight after that with another podcast it's a formula one grand prix week coming up as well so australian grand prix in melbourne there'll be a podcast about that as well stick with us on the race don't forget the hyphen for everything you need to know about the world of f1 MotoGP, formula e and indycar and we'll see you back here again this time next week The Athletic.